The Book Nook on WISO was presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Wright Memorial Public Library, Clark County Public Library, Tip City Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, and Washington Centerville Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCune. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the program today Thomas Perry. He joins us on the telephone in Los Angeles, California. Welcome back, Tom. Thanks, Vic. You have a new novel out. It's called Hero. And I had you on the show a year ago for your book, Murder Book. And I've been waiting for this because I wanted another opportunity to talk to you. So, so this is pretty exciting for me. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> How did you get the idea for this one? This is another standalone. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, it was one of those things that uh, it just sort of floated through my mind, and I I, uh, I thought, yeah, this is probably the one that I want to think about for a few months. Um, you know, I mean, that's really what, what kind of decides what I'm going to write next. As I'll, you know, it's easy to have ideas. You have a million ideas a day, but... Uh, yeah, you have to find one that you're willing to think about and think all the way through. And I, I thought to myself, you know, this is a story that I've never heard. And, uh, you know, maybe other people would be interested too. So that was my excuse to start working on this one. <laughs> you, know? you still have a million ideas a day. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> one of those things that... If you have an empty enough head, things, uh, <laughs> anything that you see or hear can, can okay. <laughs> fill up some empty space. What was it about this uh, angle that was so tantalizing? Well, there were several things. I mean, one of them was that, uh, you know, living in Los Angeles has been kind of a, I don't know, strange historic education as I've gone along, and it... it uh, the city has changed. Things in general have changed. But one of the things that's most notable uh, is this sort of huge disparity between the kind of the, the rich and the poor. Uh, you know, we have some approximately 60,000 homeless people in, in uh, Los Angeles, but we also have um, people with incredible wealth. Uh, this is the, this is, Still, the capital of, of show business, and the, really for the world. And so we have a lot of people who uh, are very well known. And you walk into a drugstore or something, and there's a a person you just saw on the screen last night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so the, there's the, all of these sort of odd little industries that have have uh, built up around here. And one of them is uh, bodyguards. You know, uh, uh, personal security for uh, really the wealthy. And in this particular case, I, I decided that I wanted to think about those people for a while. That's who who does this? Who works in this industry? Um, and you know, kind of build a, an adventure around that. And I also, I guess, in a way, this is sort of a a twist on a, a kind of damsel in distress. Story hmm. that is uh, my the hero in the 
and the uh, title of the hero is a young woman named Justine Poole, who is uh, a young woman who works in a kind of uh, specialized part of this, uh, well, personal security industry. I mean, she tends to work either as a bodyguard for a woman uh, celebrity who will want to travel with a, another woman rather than to have uh, be sort of surrounded by very large men. And uh, a large part of this of this uh, industry really consists not of you know fighting off adoring fans or something, but really kind of guiding the uh, the client to be in places where they won't be noticed. Mm. That is, you know, uh, you've seen I'm sure outside of a of any concert or anything, there's, there's sort of a huge gaggle of people waiting for the uh, headliner to come out the stage door or whatever and, and you know, appear. And, uh, you know, that isn't always desirable and it isn't always safe. And so, you know, a big part of this, uh, the job would be uh, putting people into the situations where they're not noticed mm-hmm. as they you know, go out into the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that, that I haven't seen a lot of, a lot of uh, stories about it. In this particular case, it's, it's about this young woman who, uh, you know, goes about, in the opening of the book, uh, goes about her normal part of the business. She uh, escorts a... a uh, female comedian to a, a comedy club on Sunset Boulevard to try out some new material as a surprise guest in the middle of the, of the evening. And she gets through that and then takes the, the uh, comedian home and then gets an emergency call from her boss, who's a guy named Ben Spengler. And uh, he says, you know, I'm out. I'm uh, watching over this, you know, uh, important <laughs> Hollywood couple, and I'm noticing what looks like uh, a kind of a group of, of guys who appear to be kind of getting ready for what looks like a, a follow home robbery. That is, that uh, as these uh, this very rich couple will leave a restaurant where they've been in a meeting. Um, he believes that, that these guys are going to follow them home and try and rob them. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, you know, are you done with your, your first assignment for the, the evening? I, you know, this is kind of an odd situation, but I need you. <laughs> I need somebody for backup, and you're out in, a, in your car right now. And she says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go and I'll, you know, serve as your backup. Where do you want me? Do you want me to go? to the restaurant, do you want me to, to uh, go to their house? And he says, go to their house. And so she's there thinking that what she's going to do is wait and be just a, essentially another another car, another person who is going to be in the way uh, to prevent this robbery. But she beats not only uh, her boss there, but she gets there just as, a very few minutes before 
the old couple starts to drive uh, up their street toward their driveway, followed very closely by these five young men who were, uh, you know, essentially about to rob them. And uh, in a <laughs> the ensuing confusion, she ends up getting into a gunfight with these these robbers who uh, really don't want to be cornered and kills two of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> and that's our blazing beginning to, yeah, well, uh, to I mean, hero. What, you know, what happens is basically you begin, at this point, you start to ask questions. You know, um, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, as a, as, as a uh, you know, this young woman who has been doing this job, which is pretty glamorous and gave her access to an awful lot of interesting places and got her to meet a lot of interesting people. But at the same time, you know, as her boss told her when she was much younger and she was just being trained, you know, any job where you have to carry a gun is a rotten job. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and in, well. in her case, you know, what she begins to ask herself is, you know, how could this not happen eventually? How could this, you know, how could I expect this to, to have, uh, you know, been okay? And then... You know, later on, we begin to ask other questions. Like suddenly, she becomes, in the media, a uh, you know kind of media darling. There's this you know attractive young woman uh, who has just essentially won a gun battle against a bunch of of criminals and saved the lives, possibly, of two you know very popular and beloved philanthropists and and. Uh, famous performers. Um, so suddenly she's a hero. Suddenly everybody wants to interview her. And suddenly um, she's in a situation where uh, any attention is likely to be bad for her. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not a, uh, a job where you want to be, you know, a familiar face. Right. And well, there's... there's uh, you know, in a sense, any kind of notoriety brings danger in a large city. Mm-hmm. Well, a key aspect of this is after this happens, her name is Justine Poole, but nobody knows this. The media is trying to find out her identity so they can say, oh, look at this hero and expose her to all this danger because initially nobody knows who she was and the security company she's working for isn't sane, yet the media, they're dig, dig, digging, trying to get her identity, and this is what puts her in so much danger. And then we have the added aspect of the fact that these thugs were working for some kind of criminal mastermind who employed them to pull off these kinds of robberies, and, and he's not happy. You know, that's, that's the first and, and biggest you know, problem that she's got to face. I've been joined on the program by Thomas Perry, and we'll continue with our conversation right after this. Thomas Perry joins us on the telephone out in Los Angeles. His new book is Hero. The way the book works really has to do with um, people not really quite realizing or understanding the danger that they're putting her in. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, in a way, uh, it's 
there's there's this, this second thing going on, which is that as as the clock ticks by, I mean, this whole book takes like three days, uh-huh. you know, three or four days to to play itself out. But it's you know, as she goes along, each of the things that would have made her safe or would have, let's say, at least contributed to her defense are, you know, one by one taken away from her. Uh-huh. And, you know, the very first thing, of course, is that, you know, if you're, if you're expecting retaliation from a very violent uh, group of criminals, uh, one of the things that you might want is to, uh, you know, have a firearm. And, you know, in her case, of course, because she has been involved in a shooting, you know, the police aren't sure at this point, or can't be sure, really, whether what they're looking at is this, uh, you know, great piece of heroism in which someone was saved from criminals, or if it was just plain murder. And so they, of course, have to confiscate her gun right at the beginning, for you know, forensic testing and so on, and uh, there's really no <laughs> no good way to get uh, a weapon in in you know the situation like that to protect yourself. Well, fortunately, she no longer you know really has any legal uh, right to carry. Sure. Well, fortunately, she's incredibly good at her job. And as we follow her through the story with a really bad guy after her, her survival instincts and her ability to get out of jams, it's just, it is so fun to read. This is such a page turner. It's Hero by Thomas Perry. And uh, I just, I, I was so excited when I heard this book was coming out because a year ago when I had you on the show for Murder Book, that's the first book of yours that I had read. And I was so impressed by that one, another standalone, that in the intervening years since we did that first interview, I have gone into your catalog and I've done a deep dive into your stuff. And I went right back to the beginning and I read The Butcher Boy. And, and that kit book came out in 1982. You won the Edgar for it. That book totally knocked me out. I love that. And here we have a book about an assassin who is hired to kill people and your story, hero. You've got an assassin chasing around your your hero. So, so you, you love this assassin aspect, don't you? Well, it, you know, it does. It, it it allows you to talk about certain things. You know, there are certain things that that uh, um, <laughs> there's nothing like putting your your hero or your protagonist, in the case of you know a book, into uh, under pressure. That is, put them in a situation where any rational person would be afraid, mm-hmm. and then you test them. Mm-hmm. You, you, you uh, make the, the situation as bad as you can, and then you try and see um, what they're made of. You know, are they, um, you know, extremely uh, careful and experienced and and. Uh, alert and so on and if they are then you know that's there's that's an aspect of the story um and you know we can write about all kinds or or actually know about all kinds of courage and and character and so on but for the purposes of uh entertainment it's a lot easier for us to envision 
you know, someone being in physical danger. Mm. You know that that uh, you know, in a way, that's where uh, where it becomes most stark and and uh, it stands out the most. That you know, any uh, <laughs> any time that that uh, you're in a situation uh, expecting a professional killer to come after you is really. Um, <laughs> really a time to lose some sleep you know yes somewhat fraught yes you're listening to the book nook on 91.3 wyso introducing you to your new favorite song and uh today i'm talking to thomas perry about his new novel hero and after i read the butcher's boy you you really had me hooked so i went and i read all those other books in that series and i like how you've continued to go back in. I think the most recent book, uh, Eddie's Boy, came out four years ago. And and then I thought, well, I need to read another of your series. So I got into the Jane Whitefield series. And these are fantastic, too. And, and I see this is another one where I think you've written nine of them. You, you wrote the first one in 95, and you've done one as recently as three years ago. So you keep yeah. dipping back into these. Tell us about Jane Whitefield. I love this character. Well, Jane, Jane is a... Um a kind of a product of a failure of mine. Uh, you know, nobody ever tells you about their failures, but this is, I, I decided at a certain point that I was going to write my definitive Los Angeles earthquake novel. And so I started, you know, writing about the city and uh, I, I read everything that I could find and uh, about, you know, the ge- uh, geological situation that Los Angeles is in. And um, I read the state's contingency plan, um, expected, you know, which which predicts, you know, which overpasses are going to fall down and, and block roads, and which uh, places are going to have the, the uh, ground liquefy by the shaking, and you know, the water will come up, the groundwater will come up and turn it all into a big soup, and mm-hmm. all this, you know, terrible stuff. And I you know, put together about 10 characters all over the uh, Southern California who one morning wake up to this shaking of, of the, the earth and, you know, essentially this destruction from one end of the, the county to another. And, um, you know, it was, it was going along and I, I kept working and working and working on it. And I suddenly realized that I already had 360 pages of, uh, this novel, and I had no idea where in the world it was going to end or how it was going to end. And I, you know, I, I asked my wife to take a look at it. You know, and my wife is a as a novelist and and also was my writing partner in television and uh, has a PhD in English and taught in universities and so on. And she's the perfect person to ask advice from. Mm-hmm. Because you know there are very few people who have the courage to tell the person that they're married to that something that they wrote isn't good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so that takes real character. Uh, this is Joe and, uh, Joe Perry. Yes, uh-huh. Joe Perry. Yeah, my wife. And um, you know she's written seven novels, and uh, basically since our kids grew up, she <laughs> has written seven novels. Wow, really, really very good and. Uh, Anyway, what she thought of it was, uh, she said, Tom, this is so boring that I, I can't even finish it. <laughs> and so, you know, at that point, I decided I was going to write about the part of the world that I 
grew up in because it was smaller and more, um, I don't know, let's say manageable than writing about an enormous thing happening in an enormous city. And uh, I, I thought, okay, well, I'll start writing. I'll, I'll write about my family history, you know, people that lived there. And then, but I, as I went back and began to, you know, read about history and do research and so on, I realized that the most interesting things that have ever happened in that part of the world happened before Europeans arrived. Uh-huh. You know, this was a, a place of great strategic importance. Uh, it's the uh, space between Buffalo and Niagara Falls along the Niagara River. And, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're pretty familiar with, with you know, that part of the world because, you know, essentially... Uh, you know, any place along the lakes. We kind of knew about the history of other places. But as I was reading, I realized, you know, that the the people that I should be writing about is somebody um, who uh, represents in some way or is aware of, you know, the history of the place in addition to everything else. And so I also at that time thought to myself, well, I, I'm, I really should... If I can't write about uh, a female protagonist, I should probably learn how. Uh-huh. And so I'm going to try. I'm going to do this. And so I invented Jane Whitefield, who is um, a, a Seneca, and um, you know she's she's half Seneca. Her father's family was was. Uh, Seneca, and um, his, her mother was a, a uh, woman f- who lived in New York City and was of Irish descent. And um, you know, she grew up in, in, a, in a way that that sort of gives her a, a great uh, understanding of the place. Like she understands as she goes along, you know, Route Five going uh, out of Buffalo. Uh, it, it kind of turns into five and twenty going across the state. Well, that's you know that's not just that modern road, but it's it was a road that was built on top of a really important Iroquois trail. Mm-hmm. You know, the one that ran basically across the, the state from uh, the Niagara River to to the the Hudson, and uh, you know villages were built along. Along the way, which later become you know the cities of New York State of upstate New York, and uh, you know she's also aware of of you know everything essentially that has happened uh, you know since uh, Europeans you know came into the the uh, Native American world, and you know so she's she's a person who can see a lot of things at once. You know, you look at one site and you know all aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And so she's she was good. And I, I decided I would I would didn't want to make her into some sort of a law enforcement person, um, but to uh, be doing something that's at least illegal and you know semi questionable. And I did realize that uh, it's a person who can change other people's identities is an extremely you know, valuable person to have around. That is, it's, you know, it, it, uh, if you were a 
counterfeiter and you counterfeited $100 bills that were absolutely perfect, uh, it still wouldn't be as valuable as a person who can give you an ID that will, you know, pass the scrutiny of <laughs> of enforcement at that time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what what Jane does is is takes people who are um, who have a, a, a really strong reason to believe that they're about to be murdered and teaches them to live as new people in new places where nobody knows them and essentially gives them a chance to redo their lives. And, yeah. You know, that's, that's a fun concept too. Like what is identity and what, if you, you are an adult who has gotten yourself into some sort of trouble, um, what would you do differently? What, you know, mm-hmm. well, here's your chance. You can yeah, start these, all over again. These Jane Whitefield books are so great, and, and I'm hoping maybe you'll have a tenth one someday, but I, I love how you complicate things. She, later on in the series, she marries this doctor, and she supposedly retires. She supposedly stops doing this, but there's no stopping. You know, it's like the butcher boy. You know, you, you don't retire. Somebody's <laughs> going somebody's gonna to call you, and uh, you, you're going to end up, you know, doing your job again because we got to have right. a new novel from Thomas Perry. So <laughs> I've read a lot of your standalones as well. And one of my favorites came out uh, six years ago, the bomb maker. Oh man, that was incredible. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you. I, uh... <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. You, it was, it was, you know, something I've been thinking about <laughs> writing for years, you know, but the tr- trouble with that stuff is that you know when you start to write uh, about it, you you begin to worry that something you're going to say is going to give somebody an idea. You oh, uh huh. And and so you do have to be very careful about that stuff. But it's um, yeah, you know, it's 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 about you know basically a guy who is trained the way. Um, they actually train bomb squads and, you know, is essentially uh, legally qualified to, to do that stuff and has worked as a police officer for quite a number of years but has retired and gone into uh, a uh, um, sort of private detective mode uh, as a, a lot of police officers do after they, you know, are are no longer working, mm-hmm. um, but is you know finds that he, he needs to to go back and you know try and and uh, solve uh, a new problem at the you know Los Angeles uh, police uh, have with a with a bomb maker. Yeah, well, I love a good villain, and your bomb maker is like the ultimate. Villain. I mean, he is so awful. I just that, that was really fun to read. And you mentioned a, a moment ago that uh, you and Joe uh, were writing for TV together. Didn't you yeah. write for Star Trek: The Next Generation? We read. I, we wrote one one Star Trek. Okay. Only one Star Trek because we did it um, because of a, a guy whom we loved very much named Mike, Mike Piller had been a, uh, a, you know, actually our boss at, when we f- had first started 
writing uh, at television for Simon and Simon oh. and, and at Universal. Yeah, he was the producer, and we were co-producers, so we were below the, you know, one step below him. And he was, you know, essentially a person who helped teach us how to how to write a television script. Mm. You know, I mean, he was he was great, um, and he he was, you know, at this point had become one of the producers of Star Trek: The Next Generation. And we watched the show and liked it and stuff. And he called us up and he said, you know, will you write one of these for us? You know, so we did, and uh, you know we uh, we enjoyed it and stuff, but we weren't in a situation to really go back full time because you know our first child was uh, born uh-huh. between times and was about I don't know must have been about she must have been about three by then, but uh, and my wife really from the beginning wanted to essentially raise our own children and that's not really a you know being on the staff of a tv show prime time is often a, a situation where you have six days a week 14 hours a day if things are going well wow mm. you know gotcha it's, it's a lot of work and, yeah. and you know what you're doing a lot of the time is is um you know rewriting somebody else's script because you you know to make it uh conform to the uh, well, the policies and so on of the show, and the, uh, every TV show has a thing called the Bible, and what it is is it's a it's actually a, a written document that tells tells you, you know, <laughs> essentially what the rules of the universe are that the show exists in, mm-hmm. you know, and, it, and it also lists every episode it's ever been been uh, uh, written about it. It's, at the point when we were getting into Star Trek, for instance, you know, they had a chapter called, you know, the anthropology of Star Trek, and there was a physics of Star Trek, and there was a, you know, so <laughs> you had to know, you know, the difference between a, you know, a Klingon and, and a Vulcan. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> well, it was, uh, it, it was one of those things. So. It was fun to fun to do one of those, but uh, yeah, well, you know. it's nice to have that on your resume. It's <laughs> it's really been great to talk to you. We really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks. It was a pleasure. That was Thomas Perry on the telephone in Los Angeles. Don't go away. We've got a little extra time on the program today. We're going to bring you a special bonus right after this. The book now continues on WYSO. If you've been listening to YSO for a while, you might recall that back in 1994 when I began hosting the Excursions music program, I also did a lot of interviews with other people, authors, playwrights, movie stars, you name it. Whoever was coming through the area, we used to do interviews, and a lot of musicians appeared on the program. And one of them who came through, I think she was still a teenager, and her name is Toshi Regan. She is the daughter of Bernice Johnson Regan, the founder of Sweet Honey and the Rock. And she had an album out called The Righteous Ones, and she performed a couple of songs. And I looked her up to see what she's been up to lately. And last year, Toshi and her mother, Bernice Johnson Regan, wrote the music for an opera called Parable of the Sower, based on Octavia Butler's parable novels. 
Octavia Butler died in 2006. Uh, she appeared on Fresh Air with Terry Gross back in 1993, and she talked about the use of abuse of power in a broken society, and that's what these parable books are about, and Parable of the Sower, the opera with music by Toshi Regan was staged last year, and uh, that's what she's been up to. But back, gosh, 20 years ago or more, actually longer than that, she was coming through to play at Canal Street Tavern. She had an album out called The Righteous Ones. Let's listen now to Toshi Regan live in the studio back in the day. <laughs>
changing times now don't it make you feel scared there are there are years and years now they're coming on down don't let him catch you Toshi Regan with a song from her new album, The Righteous Ones, and it's called There Are. Is there any way we could get you to do one more song? Sure, it'd be our pleasure. And, um, you know, Antioch, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Antioch College. So I hope to see some folks from the school there. And if you come, just scream loud that you're from Antioch, and we'll, we'll do something special for you. I don't know what. We'll make up a fight song for you. The Antioch fight song. Uh, this is a song from uh, uh, the record, The Rejected Stone. It's called uh, Just Enough. Coming over me 
Toshi Regan live on WYSO, and we hope we've given you just enough. That was your bonus segment, a little musical bonus on your uh, Saturday Book Nook program. And that was Toshi Regan recorded live right here at WYSO over 20 years ago. She had a CD out called The Righteous Ones. I love her voice. And she recently created an opera with her mother, Bernice Johnson Regan. And that was called Parable of the Sower. It debuted last year in New York. Tune in tomorrow when we'll bring you a special edition of The Book Nook. I'll be getting a call from London, England, from a woman who is the Senior Vice President of International Affairs for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals in the UK. 
Her name is Purva Josipura, and her book is called Survival at Stake, How Our Treatment of Animals is Key to Human Existence. And uh, this is a wide-ranging book, and I think it's an important one. Do you think about where your food comes from? According to Purva, 50 years ago, our meat consumption per person was half of what it is now. And the global impacts of these food industries are pretty shocking. I'm going to share something from her book, okay? The existence of aquaculture or fish farms, factory farms for fish, in which huge numbers of salmon or other fish are raised in cages or tanks, harms wild animals too. In its report, Until the Seas Run Dry, How Industrial Agriculture is Plundering the Oceans, Compassion in World Farming, along with other agencies, reveals almost a fifth of the world's total catch of wild fish is processed into fish meal and fish oil, of which 69% of fish meal and 75% of fish oil production are used to feed farmed fish. These fish and fish products are fed to non-carnivorous farmed fish for abnormally fast growth. They're also often fed to farm chickens and pigs. The report reveals the target species to feed on farmed fish are usually small forage fish such as sardines, anchovies, mackerel and herring, and crustaceans like krill. But these are the animals that tuna, salmon, cod, sharks, and whales need to survive. The group warns of knock-on effects on other marine life, including marine mammals and seabirds, and that feeding farmed fish wild-caught fish could have other unknown consequences given the extreme complexity of marine ecosystems and the impacts of climate change. In an article about the eye-opening documentary Seas Piracy, on how fishing industries impact oceans and the planet. British journalist George Monbiot says the film highlights why we must treat fish not as seafood, but as wildlife. This is because just as hunting on land can lead to animals going extinct, so can hunting in the sea. Neither jungles nor oceans are a never-ending resource. In 2006, a study reported on in Science warned that Per global trends at that time, all species of wild-caught marine animals are on course to collapse by 2050. Collapse meaning a 90% reduction of the species' baseline population. A 2014 National Geographic magazine article cautioned that by then already, aquacultural pollution, a putrid cocktail of nitrogen, phosphorus, and dead fish, is now a widespread hazard in Asia, and that to keep fish alive in densely stocked pens, some Asian farmers resort to antibiotics and pesticides that are banned for use in the U.S., Europe, and Japan. Drugs are commonly used in underwater factory farms for the same reasons they are used in factory farms above ground, to compensate for filth and severe overcrowding. They are also used to increase growth, a couple of years ago, India's environmental magazine Down to Earth raised the fact that we should still be concerned. During Antimicrobial Awareness Week, its journalist wrote, Diseases are a primary constraint to aquaculture, and a variety of drugs are used to control the diseases. 
However, the imprudent use of these drugs in aquaculture is a contributing factor in the spread of antimicrobial resistance. That, as you will recall, is when medicines we need fail to work. The magazine went on to state, since the majority of antimicrobials used in aquaculture are also employed in human medicine, their use has a significant impact on the development of AMR and other ecological niches, particularly the human environment. Researchers have reported an increase in the frequency of serious infections and treatment failures as a result of antimicrobial resistance being transferred from aquaculture to humans through the consumption of aquaculture products. Regarding fish farming in India, specifically down to earth revealed misuse and overuse of antibiotics are pervasive. This is an important book. I'll be talking to Purva Jashapura tomorrow morning, right here on WYSO at 10.30. Survival at Stake, How Our Treatment of Animals is Key to Human Existence. This was a very difficult book to read. It took me a long time to read it because it was painful to read to read about the mistreatment of animals, to read about what factory farming is really like. Shocking, but important. That's coming up tomorrow, 10.30, right here in the book nook at 91.3 on your dial. Thanks for listening. <laughs>